Hello, and welcome to the My Messy Church podcast. Each week, we'll be going through your questions submitted during the weekend services and looking to scripture to help us find some answers. If you haven't listened to this weekend sermon, I want to encourage you to head over to curtislake.org backslash media, where you can listen to the sermon and have context for our conversation today. We love getting your questions and cannot wait to grow together. So without further ado, let's dive into My Messy Church. Hello, and welcome back to the My Messy Church podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. We had a lot of questions come in this past Sunday, and uh, so I want to get right into it. Um, If you want to refer back to the text that we were teaching on this past week, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, I encourage you to kind of look at that. Um, 22 questions today. So, Shane, I'm going to have to... uh, some of these are going to take a little while, so I'll have to move more quickly through some of the other ones, but hey, we'll do the best we can. All right. Uh, first question that came in, well, not that came in, but the first question that like is at the top because um, so many people like the question is, how does our church interpret and apply the teachings of the Bible in relation to LGBTQ individuals and their participation in our community? Um, so... There's this question, and there's a there's another question uh, that, that that comes down a little later that I'll I'll try to kind of hit both of them uh, at the same time. Um, in you know, it's this is a it's a little challenging to take. Like I get that it's just a little question, but this is a this is a question that I could spend literally a series of podcasts uh, kind of talking about um, because anytime we start to talk about uh, something like, just using the words here, like LGBTQ individuals. Um, and well, how do we, you know, how do we interpret the teachings of the Bible in relation to LGBTQ individuals? Uh, there's a lot that kind of needs to go into this. Like, all right, well, what exactly are we, are we talking about? Uh, there's a tendency in a, a lot of the conversations, which end up not even being conversations because, uh, people are kind of throwing terms out there and coming from different places uh, of where those terms are uh, or how those terms are understood, you know. Um, and, and one of the things that we have to do is really try to be precise with our language. And so if it's okay with everybody, um, I was asked a question like this some months ago, and I spent a pretty decent amount of time just kind of writing out and talking a little bit about like where I was at with my perspective and like how I understood um, who we are, who we are becoming uh, as a church. Uh, because we do, like we, we, we certainly have um, a, uh, a, a conviction on what scripture teaches us when it comes to the, when it comes to matters of human sexuality. I mean, if we could just like move even beyond the question of LGBT individuals and like who we are as human beings, um, as as human beings who have been uh, who are who are sexual beings, right? Um, it, it, we have we have been created and part of the, the order of our bodies. Um, many of us is uh, some form of sexual expression, uh, which uh, you know the, the scripture actually has a, a lot to talk about. One of my one of my primary concerns uh, and kind of like my starting point for even a conversation like this has much more to do with 
our understanding of marriage uh, and how we define exactly what marriage is and then kind of move from there, right? Because we, in scripture, what we do have is we have uh, 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 the institution, the creation of marriage uh, from the very beginning uh, that's, I think, defined in a pretty precise manner that then serves as a foundation for so much of what we understand um, when it comes to uh, sexual expression as human beings. And like, what does it mean to be obedient to God with our bodies, to God, to glorify and honor God, uh, with our bodies. So anyway, uh, let me read this. I I think we'll also probably, um, you know, provide this in the notes section, uh, of the, of the podcast. If you, if you want to go back and read it a little more carefully, but it's pretty lengthy. Um, so here it is, uh, on the LGBT question, uh, the series, uh, so this is kind of in response to a sermon series that we had been that we had done uh, earlier this year. On the LGBT question, the series is intended as one of the conversations that help people grow in their understanding of what it means that Jesus is for anybody, uh, and we want to be as a church as well. Uh, you wrote uh, the person had written and asked about you know what does it mean for us to be welcoming and affirming and uh, affirming. So I wrote. Uh, You wrote welcoming and affirming as if they're the same thing, but there's a lot packed in there. I would say that we are aspiring to be a radically inclusive place for all persons, wherever they may be in life, and especially those who think they'd be the last person a church would want among them. Our church holds a historically Christian definition of marriage, which Christians of all kinds, at all times, and in all places. And I gave examples like the early church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Syrian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church, the Protestant Church, um, African churches, European churches, Asian churches, uh, and churches of the Americas. And so up until this modern era, they all together universally have held up as the standard for God's creative order, Uh, and that such marriage serves as the foundational unit of family in society. The lifelong, monogamous, covenantal relationship between two differently sexed persons is the very definition of biblical marriage as defined in the creation account and prior to the fall, uh, and is also upheld by Jesus himself. Jesus um, specifically refers back to the creation account when he talks Uh, and answers a question uh, about marriage. That society has sought to redefine marriage, uh, which is our present reality, right? Like we have in our society, we have, uh, we have, we have made the the move to redefine marriage. Uh, Marriage had always uh, required a relationship between a man and a woman um, in um, you know, in much of our life experience, it has always been about the uh, intended to be the life, the lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And so that's changed. Um, you know, attitudes toward marriage and sexuality have definitely transitioned over the years um, and, and, you know, to where they're very, very different today from they were from what they were just decades ago. Um, I'm sorry, I'm reading off script here right now, but um, yeah, I, you know, we, uh, we have changed laws regarding divorce, um, uh, and, and that's, that's created a, a major shift in the, the, um, 
how easy, I, I don't know if easy is the right word, but uh, it's, it's, it's a lot simpler for a person to seek and to get a divorce than it was uh, some decades ago uh, before something like no-fault divorce um, was written into our laws. Uh, so our attitudes toward like the permanence of marriage have changed. Uh, it's pretty common to see a person uh, having experienced in their lives multiple marriages and not just due to death, uh, but to the fact that their first marriage maybe didn't work out and they dissolved that marriage and then sought another marriage, right? So as a, as a society, our... our um, our understanding of the permanence of marriage has changed. Also, our understanding of like who can get married has also changed. Uh, so not that long ago, only two biologically differently sexed persons could get married. And, you know, that changed, right? So now today, in, written in our law, uh, two same-sex individuals uh, can get married. So again, getting back to what I wrote, that society has sought to redefine marriage has doctrinal and pastoral considerations, right? So again, like just thinking about what we are as a church uh, and understanding that there is a there's there's a reality out there, um, and and though and that reality, the way society has uh, that we as a society have decided to to treat and to define uh, marriage, it has it has implications uh, for you know what do we what do we believe? What do we agree with? What do we disagree with? And then there's also, besides just the simple statements of like what we believe, uh, what are the pastoral considerations that come alongside that? Uh, so if I can make an analogy, uh, you know, going back to uh, the question of like divorce and remarriage, uh, back when divorce was looked at as kind of like a failure, like a, a you know, a catastrophic human failure for a person, um, when a person got divorced and then remarried, they might have they might have been kind of like side eyed, you know, when they walked into the church with a new spouse because the church, you know, was would would almost maybe not almost would would perhaps shun a person that had that kind of experience. Or uh, many people remember a time when it would have been very shameful for a woman who was unmarried to be found out to be pregnant, right? And there would be a great degree of shame that was assigned to that. And that person might even be kicked out of a religious community for having, you know, sinned against both God and also the religious community. And so uh, the church has a pretty long track record of treating people very, very poorly that don't fall within kind of the guidelines or the moral framework um, that that church has established as, all right, this is the, you know, these are the acceptable behaviors and these are the unacceptable behaviors. And if you're guilty of any of these unacceptable behaviors, then out you go. Uh, And so, uh, you know, today, uh, the idea of a, you know, a teenager uh, getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant uh, may have some shame associated with it, but certainly less shame. Like we have, our attitudes have changed toward that. And fortunately, I think the church has done uh, or you know, some churches have done a, a better job of, uh, of of not being this hateful and rejecting kind of culture, uh, but has instead you know tried to come alongside those who are you know find themselves in a place where they really they need to be loved and supported and helped kind of through that uh, through that experience. Um, I don't know of churches that are quick to, you know, kick people out because their marriage failed. I'm, I'm sure there are some, uh, you know, but again, largely those have, um, those have lessened 
When it comes to the LGBT question, uh, when it comes to people who are gay, um, identify as queer, uh, as having a, um, you know, some kind of gender dysphoria or otherwise, um, you know, want to express uh, a gender that is different from what they were assigned at birth. A uh, person talks about uh, the fact that they experience same-sex attraction, you know, things like that, or that people are actually in a relationship with a, a, a member of the same sex. Uh, both the world and the church um, have a long track record of treating such people very, very poorly. Like, um, very poorly, is a, that's a bad way to say it. it, it, it like, um, yeah, I don't even know if I have a word to describe the the atrocities that have been committed against uh, people that find themselves in the segment of, you know, sexual minorities or gender minorities. Uh, many of them have been uh, um, victims of, of heinous violence and crime, um, uh, of bullying and teasing. Uh, we know that people that fall into these this particular demographic uh, experience a higher degree of depression and uh, both suicidal tendencies as well as um, uh, suicide efforts, right? So, so there's pastoral considerations that have to be taken very, very seriously when it comes to, um, okay, there's, guess what? Like in Sanford, Maine, there are people who are gay. There are people um, who, um, who are trans. Like, what are you going... What are you as a church going to do about that? Like, um, are those are those people just uh, is the church off limits uh, and inaccessible to such people? Um, are they going to be treated, you know, shamefully? Uh, are they going to are are they going to find a religious community that's going to reject them before it even knows them? You know, simply because of how they identify or even because of what they're doing, right? So these are the pastoral um, considerations. Sorry, getting back to the letter here. Um, Those who love incomplete and simple solutions to complex questions have conflated the two things. That is the the doctrinal positions that a church might have and also the pastoral considerations. Um, We've made the error of treating those things exactly the same. Um, That is, they would contend that to hold a historically Christian view of marriage, which is our doctrine, then necessarily means hateful rejection of those who don't align with that definition. And that's kind of the pastoral question. I reject this view. I adamantly hold that marriage as God has ordered it can only occur within the parameters he has set. And we need to hold up this vision for marriage and family as God's ideal for the flourishing of humanity. At the very same time, and just as importantly, we have incredible pastoral considerations and responsibilities within the world and in time and time in which God has placed us. I hold that faith and religious groups, including major segments of the church, have done great harm in their treatment of LGBT persons in the same way that the larger secular society had done to them practically forever. Before the sexual revolution, religious and non-religious people alike would have mistreated LGBT persons as outcasts. With the sexual revolution, a massive swing to the public and external attitudes toward human sexuality changed among the non-religious. 
including a head start on increased tolerance toward sexual behaviors that were rarely before ever acceptable. Religious groups, probably out of fear for losing control and feeling like their worlds and their power were being stripped away, doubled down on doctrinal and positional truths, which manifested in more glaring and obvious distinctions of meanness, hatefulness, pride, rejection, condemnation, etc. What should have happened is that Christianity should have always led from the front lines of humanizing all persons, regardless of the kinds of things they did or the ways they identified. The church should have been a haven for the marginalized, where the hurting and oppressed could have been loved and embraced in safety. Instead of being defined by a person's sexual acts, for example, the unwed mom, the pregnant teen, the gay man or woman, the sex worker, etc., they should have been seen for the image-bearing human God created them to be. They should have been offered community and support and a loving place to belong, the likes of which the world had never seen and could never offer. But that didn't happen. And now the church regrettably but fairly bears the marks of being something unlike what Jesus had envisioned. And people in the church have divided on what to do about it. Some have dismissed the deposit of faith passed on to us from Jesus through his apostles and recorded in scripture as relatively unimportant in framing our understanding of such things as human sexuality. And others have championed the historical and orthodox faith, including God's order for human marriage. For the second group, some have closed and insulated themselves well against the pressures of society to conform and give in to such things as redefining of marriage and the obliteration of a gender binary, but have also in the process maintained a barrier of exclusion that renders it ineffective in reaching LGBT people. Others, however, are committed to a missiology that desires to see every person, especially the marginalized and far off, introduced to Jesus as Savior and King. This is where I describe myself. This is a place where wisdom, tenderness, grace, openness, conviction, solidarity, truth, realism, pragmatism, and empathy are going to be necessary. It's a really hard place, and I don't know exactly how to do it, but I'm seeking both to be discipled in it and have been discipling toward it for the last three-plus years. It's not going to be good enough for some. It is already proven to not be good enough for some. And it will be too much for others. But I believe it's the way of Jesus. It is the way of the true faith passed on to us from the apostles that seeks to understand more fully and embrace more radically the authority of God's word and what it intends to have in our lives. In the way, it is the way of real love not the imposter form of love popularized today, which is recast Jesus and redefine God from what he has revealed to us about himself and which has, this, and which has denied what is true as a convenience to what people would prefer to imagine. 
So to the question of, are we welcoming and inclusive to the queer community? Yes, that is my earnest hope. We can honor and dignify a trans person without abandoning the prevailing order of creation that God has created humankind, male and female, and that biological sex is itself a humanizing feature of a person's nature. But that at the same time, some struggle with gender dysphoria. Some militantly reject that there is such a thing as a gender binary, and some simply ride the wave of culture. We can honor and dignify a gay person who maintains an intimate relationship, marriage, or family without abandoning the historically Christian definition of marriage. We not only can, we must. It won't be neat and clean, it won't be easy, we'll make mistakes along the way, but hopefully we'll be journeying toward being a kind of church where the least likely can find Jesus and begin a relationship with him. We'll stand fast on the truth that God has revealed to us when it's convenient as well as when it's inconvenient. We'll worry more about the beans in our own eyes than the specks in others. While sexual sin has its own unique impact and consequences, we won't pretend that it's any worse than the sins of the sexually chaste, like greed, selfishness, unforgiveness, malice, envy, etc. We can hold that a certain kind of sexual behavior is immoral, and at the same time, uh, for instance, uh, that homophobic attitudes and behavior are also immoral. So that's the statement, uh, um, uh, portion of uh, what I had written, uh, and hopefully that helps to bring some clarity to, uh, you know, first of all, like, all right, well, what does our church actually hold as a position when it comes to the question of of marriage? But then also holding together, all right, yeah, we we have an understanding of what doctrine, uh, what our doctrine is, what our what our what our understanding of human sexuality is. Um, but like we don't hold that to the exclusion of what else we understand, which is that God is really big, <laughs> that God's grace is imminently vast and wide, and that he seeks to see those who have been marginalized, those who have been oppressed, those who have been disenfranchised, welcomed into his community. When it comes to the matter of, okay, well, you know, are you going to, you know, are you, are, are, are you going to force um, your understanding or your impressions of what the scriptures teach on a person so as to, you know, try to change or to regulate their behavior? Um, you know, all I would say to that is, well, no, we don't do that to, we don't do that to anybody. What we do is we do our very best to teach what scripture uh, teaches us. We are all seeking to come more and more under the authority of what Scripture teaches us, and we understand that, um, you know, that when it comes to like the behaviors of our lives and the degree to which we embody obedience to Christ, this is not something that a church or any kind of religious institution can ever, ever, ever uh, force upon another unwilling individual, right? And so, I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to try to 
to work above my pay grade, you know, and take on the role that God and God's spirit intends to have in the lives of people. What I want to do is I want to lead people to the cross. I want to lead people to see and to discover the crucified Messiah, the one that died for every single one of us. And I want to let God work in a person's life um, and do what only he can do, right? Because I, I can't I can't change anybody, nor should I necessarily want to change anybody. Um, last thing I want in the world is to just, you know, figure out how to manipulate and change people's external behaviors without a true change um, of all of our hearts, you know, myself included. And so um, I, I suppose that sport is, I, I think that speaks to like how we both interpret and also apply the, what scripture teaches us with regard to uh, human sexuality and opens the door to see how, um, you know, how we can be a place that is welcoming of, again, all people wherever they may be. Um, the follow-up question to this is, will we take an opportunity in this message series to engage with or discuss LGBTQ issues in the sermon? And how do we plan to make CL Curtis Lake a safe place or safe space for LGBTQ folks? Um, I think I've spoken a little bit to that. As far as the series is concerned, um, you know, we are, you know, as we move through this letter of First Corinthians, we do get into uh, areas of teaching that talk about matters of human sexuality. And uh, and First Corinthians actually, you know, contains one of the scriptures that's uh, kind of a, a, a big scripture in the conversation um, regarding um, whether the church ought to affirm or not affirm same-sex relationships. And so, yeah, when we get to that, we will uh, certainly be spending uh, a decent amount of time talking through and talking about, uh, you know, like both what does this, what does the Bible teach us what is our understanding of what scripture is teaching us? And then also, like, what do we what do we then do with that? How do we plan to make Curtis like a safe space for LGBTQ folks? Um, uh, if I could be a little critical of the question, um, you know, I I hope that we are, <laughs> uh, you know, and not just specifically for LGBTQ folks, but for all folks, right? Uh, and yeah, I, I like I understand, and I I do appreciate that. Because of the narrative, the historical narrative of what harm the church has been guilty of towards specifically the LGBT community, like we like we have to we have to kind of go overboard and do a better job of helping uh, for people that may identify as gay, as trans, whatever. Um, that that there's a place for them here. There's a place for them to discover Jesus and to be a part of this community, right? Um, I hope, and I hope we are, and if we're not, then I hope we are aspiring to be the kind of place where, uh, you know, let's say a, a person, you know, has come to um, understand that they have uh, uh, they have a, a sexual orientation that is in the minority, right? They, uh, you know, they are attracted to, uh, to exclusively attracted to people of the same sex and they've never told anybody about it. Um, and they've tried to not, they, they themselves, um, uh, because of whatever shame 
they may be personally experiencing uh, because of those attractions or because of that orientation are like they just, they haven't been able to share that with anybody. I hope that we would be the kind of place. I hope that I would be the kind of person uh, that such an individual would feel very, very safe in expressing uh, what it is that they happen to be experiencing, knowing that like the reaction that they're going to get is not going to be one of rejection and repulsion and, oh, you're disgusting, get out of here, get out of my face. Uh, but that instead they're going to find a loving community that is going to come alongside them and again, live in human solidarity with them and what experiences that they're having. Um, you know, some people will hear something like that and say, well, are you just saying that, that, that it's okay for people to be gay? And again, like, that's such a terrible question. Cause it's like, well, what does that even mean? Um, and, uh, we're not going to spend all of our time on, this podcast talking about this specific issue, um, you know, or even that specific question. Like I said, there is so much that kind of goes into this. So let me just conclude this kind of portion with, hey, what we are aspiring to be is a church that truly incarnates and demonstrates the unadulterated love of Jesus, the unconditional love of Jesus. Um, I have personally invested a significant amount of my time uh, in not only uh, growing in, you know, what are, like, how, how am I going to be a pastor in this world uh, that I happen to live in? Um, I have spent a significant amount of time discipling uh, our staff uh, and other leaders in, like, what it is that we aspire to become. Our church has made significant investments in um, in providing some some training, uh, some understanding, uh, trying to help us to understand. It's like, okay, we have, yes, we have this conflict where we have a particular belief that is currently stands in contrast to the to the the belief of secular society, you know, namely um, the definition of marriage, and we're not about to redefine marriage because society has defined decided to redefine marriage. But at the same time, we are also not going to dehumanize people that don't agree with um, this historical definition of marriage that we continue to hold. Um, we want for there to be space for conversation. We want there to be space for discipleship. We want there to be space for inclusion. And I can't tell you right now exactly how that's all going to look. Um, and that's, I think, a part of the reason why we are happy to describe ourselves as a messy church. You know, some churches aren't willing to deal with that mess. Some churches want to pretend that when it comes to matters of human sexuality or uh, gender dysphoria or rejection of the gender binary, that like all, you know, um, that, that, that like literally anything goes and there's nothing to see here and there's nothing to ask. We're just going to affirm, 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 no matter what. Um, I, I'm, that's, that's being, a, that's probably being too extreme. Um, you know, it's probably miscategorizing, uh, you know, places of faith as being, you know, just utterly irresponsible. So I don't mean to do that, but perhaps you get the sense of what I'm talking about. And that is that like, 
like when it comes to human sexuality, that what scripture teaches us about it, there are, there are in fact some that are not too concerned with, with what scripture speaks to us when it comes to this part uh, of the human experience. And so, yeah, we're not going to, we're not, that, that, yeah, we're not, we're not going to be like that. Like that, that, that's, that's, that's not us, nor, um, you know, on the other end, you know, there are, um, there are places where they're just going to, uh, maintain such a high degree of rigidity and, and close themselves in and guard themselves against anything outside, uh, that's, that's different or that maybe, you know, feels threatening to the way they want to be as a church community. You know, as far as I'm concerned, like Jesus draws a really, really big circle around every single one of us, wherever we are, wherever we're coming from. Uh, and he welcomes us. He invites us uh, to sit at his table. He invites us to enter into his kingdom. And like I said, you know, uh, I want to point people to Jesus, um, the Jesus that we know um, and learn about from Scripture, the Jesus who revealed uh, God for us in the flesh. I want to point people to that Jesus, the crucified Messiah. And, um, and then, and while the Holy Spirit of God is working in and through my life, I want him to be working in and through the lives of others as well. All right. Um, that Shana, that was pretty heavy. Uh, all right. Next question. How do we, boy, it's just, this just feels like a, a massive turn sideways here, but all right. How do we talk with people who are happy to believe and cling to the convenient lies that they've been taught elsewhere? Um, obviously, it's always difficult to have conversations, you know, with people where there's a you know vast difference um, in what you believe. Like, just get on a Facebook, you know, or some other social media platform, and uh, and 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 you'll find plenty of instances where people are are fighting with one another, are mean and hateful towards one another because they're coming from different perspectives. Uh, I do think that that there are people who have been deceived. Uh, scripture, it's amazing how often this comes up in the New Testament literature. The tendency for people to be deceived, to be duped. Um, to fall into the trap or to the lie that's being told. And I think the reason for that is because we all have a tendency to want to hear what we want to hear, right? Um, if, there's a, if there's a particular way of seeing something or believing something that is in alignment with the, the trajectory or the, the, um, the path our lives are taking, then it's like, okay, yeah, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to try to... Uh, embrace more and more of what we're what's already in agreement with us. Um, sometimes it's hard to hear something that is that goes against what we may be you know currently believing. Uh, and so, yeah, we have to we have to recognize first of all that there's a spiritual matter uh, that we can be deceived, right? Like we are all capable of following a lie that happens to be convenient at the time in which that lie is being told. Uh, if you, uh, you know, if you're, if, if you're a parent, you know, and 
there's some kind of incident that happens with your children, uh, you know, say one of your children. And so you get, you hear this story um, told about what your child has done, right? And then you talk to your child and they tell you a completely different story. Like, what are you going to want to do as a, as a parent? You're going to want to believe what your child is telling you. Um, and how many of us have fallen for the lie that our child has told us because it's more convenient for us to, to, to not have our relationship with that person upset than it is to confront the lie that's being told. And so, yeah, it's a, this is a, a matter of some difficulty when it comes to, um, to people living in society with one another. Uh, the fact that, uh, that you have, uh, you know, some particular belief and another person has a different belief that conflicts with that. And you're, you're thinking, why can't this person see through the delusion that they're currently under? Um, it's possible that the other person is also saying to themselves, why can't this person see through the delusion that they're under? And so I think that, uh, you know, and this can, this can speak to a, a lot of the ways in which we treat each other. Like we, we have to be humble. We have to be willing to understand that, uh, you know, a lot of times we can't change, we can't change people's minds. Um, we can't change people's hearts. You know, you might have the best argument, uh, for something you may, feel 100% sure that your perspective is the right perspective. Um, and you may even be able to articulate that in such a profound way, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change the mind or the heart of another person who is just more, um, more attuned to or, or more loyal to the, the lie or the delusion that they're currently experiencing. Uh, next question, how do we stay singularly focused on Jesus and still run programming well, but not let the programming or other extraneous things become the draw? So this week I talked about how uh, the church has, in an effort to deal with sometimes like declining church attendance or less and less religious participation as a whole, right? Because that's sort of the world in which we live. We find more and more people moving away from organized religion. Uh, and so the church is like, ah, oh, what are we going to do? And so, um, uh, you know, a lot of people have become very innovative in the way they found and build and run their churches. And so I was just kind of making the point that it's like, okay, well, some churches have grown to, to great degrees because they have a really, really, really good preacher, right? And so people are, uh, they're, they're attracted to a particular person who ends up rising to celebrity status and the church just seems to grow and grow and grow and grow without any real limits or caps. But it's it's more about that particular person than it is um, the way people are people's lives are intersecting faith and allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Or you know a church has figured out how to do really, really good programming. And the programs that it offers are just so incredible, right? Like the really great programs for kids, really great programs for adults, like just very, very attractive. And so a church grows and looks to be like, you know, a successful organization because, um, because it does its programming so well. But again, it, the question comes down to, well, you know, is the church growing because there's great programming um, or is the church growing because people are being drawn to and attracted to Jesus? It, to the extent that like lives are being tra um, transformed. 
so this person asks you, like, you know, how do we keep these other things from being the draw? And I just say, well, you know, I'm not sure that I'm against any of those things being the draw, right? Like, I, I mean, I don't want to intentionally get up on a Sunday morning and preach nothing but bad sermons so that, you know, like if we see anybody um, new come to the church, we can very easily say, well, they certainly didn't come to listen to that guy, right? That must be Jesus that's attracting them uh, to this church. Like, yeah, we don't want to intentionally preach bad sermons. We want, we want for our messages to, to connect and to resonate with people. I mean, we want to be faithful to God's word and we want, we want to teach scripture. We want to teach the way uh, of Jesus. We want to teach people like what it means to be a disciple of his, uh, but yeah, we want to, <laughs> nothing wrong with doing it in an attractive way. Nothing wrong with having uh, a, you know, a worship experience uh, that has uh, music and singing uh, and, you know, other kinds of sensory experiences that help add to the overall experience that a person would have in the sanctuary. Nothing wrong with that. Like if that attracts a person to come, then I think that that's great. Same thing with kids programming. Um, we want our kids programming certainly to be attractive, but not none of those things in uh, to be uh, ends in and of themselves, right? They're they're a means to an end, and the end ultimately is pointing people to Jesus. Uh, and so, if it takes a good program to get a person through the door, um, and then at that point they're able to, you know, maybe for the first time ever consider the call that Jesus has on their lives to surrender themselves to become one of his disciples. Yeah, I think that that's great. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, is this a difficult tension to maintain? Yeah, probably. Um, Cause I, you know, I kind of talked about how all of these other things that we can do really, really well in our own human strength and innovation, sometimes they're done and, and we've, we've, abandoned the real work of ministry, right? I talked specifically about becoming a, a people of prayer, that if we're going to, if we're going to ever become the kind of spiritual community that Jesus has designed for us to become, it's going to come because we're more and more becoming real people, men and women, boys and girls, we're becoming people of prayer. Um, we are committing ourselves to a life that pursues holiness, that while we understand we're not perfect and we're never going to be perfect, we're not going to just simply discard the idea that God is calling us to live a life of godliness and righteousness, a life that pleases him. And sometimes that means repenting of sin, of saying, you know, I'm not this thing that I was okay with doing before, I'm not, I'm not okay with doing that anymore because now I'm a follower of Jesus. And that was, that was for the old me and the new me, right? The one that's following Jesus, the one that is pledging allegiance to my King, Jesus. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, we want to see that kind of inner transformation happening in the lives of people. Um, again, with Jesus, of course, as the singular focus of our faith. How can we tell when a preaching is telling a half-truth if they are very eloquent and dynamic and sound like they are preaching the truth? Um, so first of all, let's just accept the reality that this happens, right? That there are people out there who can be very, very convincing uh, with what it is that they're talking about. And when it comes to the kinds of deception that we as human beings, especially, uh, you know, or I should say even Christians, the kind of deception that we're going to be most vulnerable to is the, it's, it's, 
It's that which is just a little bit deceptive or just, you know, a little bit incomplete, right? There's a really good chance that none of us are going to fall for some crazy outlandish lie where it's like, eh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Like we just reject that kind of thing out of hand. But if there is a, if there is a, a, a methodology or an ideology um, that teaches something that is very, very similar to uh, what, what is the true gospel, but that gets, you know, very essential things just a little bit wrong and, and starts to kind of move away um, from the essential matters of faith, yeah, we're, we can be vulnerable to that. Again, like there's, who, who of us would say um, that, you know, we don't, that we don't want to be like live comfortably in this world, uh, for instance. Like I get there is a kind of personality that wants to be contrarian, right? There, there are those who they just they just want to be contrary to whatever it is, right? Like they feed off that, they feast off that. But most of us are we'd much rather kind of go with the flow than work against it. Like we're not dying for our lives to just be full of, um, uh, you know, hostile relationships of retaliation of, you know, infighting and all that kind of stuff. Most of us, you know, we would love if our lives could be marked by peacefulness. And, um, and so, uh, when, when you find that there is dissonance between, uh, what, uh, what society holds as its kind of working ideology, uh, when you find that there's dissonance between that and what seems to be the ethic of Jesus's kingdom, you know, the conflict that might possibly arise from that uh, can be something that we find difficult. Um, and, and, and so, you know, sometimes the easier thing is to just like to compromise, to give in a little bit, uh, to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's not so important that I hold really fast to, you know, this particular belief. Now, I don't, I don't think any of us should like live our lives with a kind of arrogant dogmatism that is just completely, uh, closed, uh, or unable to actually listen to uh, opinions that are different from our own. Like if you're that kind of individual and you just can't stand to be in the presence where other things are being talked about that you disagree with, I mean, like you, you got to move, you got to, you got to grow out of that. You have to get to a place where you can actually hear somebody who disagrees with you, um, maybe even sharply disagrees with you and try to like understand where it is that they're coming from. Um, but also like there's no reason why we can't still be very strong in what we believe. Um, and so how do you, like, how do you tell, like, how could you tell if when I, when I preach this Sunday morning, if what I'm telling is actually true or not? Uh, well, I think the best way that you could do that is by knowing what the scriptures say yourselves, right? Like we all have to take responsibility for our own spiritual well-being. Uh, I'm not, I have a responsibility for the, the, the spiritual climate of our church and for 
um, for the people that, that God has called me to shepherd within this church. Like I have, yeah, I have, I have a spiritual responsibility for that, but like the, the responsibility for your spiritual welfare is not that that's not my primary responsibility. That's your primary responsibility. And so we all, we all should be students of the scriptures. Every single one of us should be reading through and studying the scriptures of becoming more and more anchored in our faith. And so what happens is as you do that, you'll get to a place where you can actually begin to recognize, you can discern when something isn't right, when something sounds something more like a half truth than the truth. And so, um, yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you, get beyond the veil of somebody's eloquence? How do you get beyond the veil of somebody's dynamic personality um, who it can be very, very convincing in their presentation of some particular things? Well, you need to know the truth for yourself. Um, and, and, and then you'll be able to, I think, better discern what may not be. How can we create a space where all are loved and welcome? while staying true to Bible truths and not condoning sins, especially those accepted in today's world. Uh, so this is kind of similar to, you know, some of what we talked about at the top of this whole thing. Um, so let's just say again, yes, we aspire to be a place where all are welcome, where all are loved. And we also aspire to be a place that is not wishy-washy when it comes to um, the importance of biblical truth for our lives. You know, it's like, again, getting into the matter of human sexuality would we be better off as a religious community to just kind of like have a hands-off approach and say, okay, well, we're just, we're, we're not going to talk about sex. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's too complicated. There's too many different opinions out there. And we just kind of need everybody to like figure out for themselves what they ought to believe, figure out for themselves what they're willing to do or not. Like, like, let's just let, let everybody kind of, we're going to take that off the table and we're going to, we're going to be a religious community, a spiritual community. Um, and, and we're just not going to care about any of that. Like, is that a healthy way to be a church? I, I, I don't think so because, you know, human sexuality is a matter of great importance. Um, you know, it kind of speaks to the very way in which you and I have been designed and we are all called to embody. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to embody obedience and allegiance to him. That is, um, when I say embody, I mean like we use our bodies <laughs> to demonstrate our allegiance and obedience to Jesus. So, you know, there's always the quest for discovering more and more like, well, what does obedience mean? What does that look like, you know, for me? Um, you know, hopefully we're not the kind of place that just simply condones or passes off sin and sinfulness as if it's not important because it is. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about, the, you know, the events of the cross, uh, the brutal crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, it speaks to the volume um, that sin has played a part in our world and in our lives. Like sin is, in fact, actually a really, really big deal. It is a cosmic-sized deal. Um, and and so, yeah, I think that the, the, the church can make a couple of different errors when it comes to the sinfulness of the people that attend that church. And let's just all remember, we all bring into our church community our own individual sinfulness. Uh, one of those errors is to be a very rejecting and judgmental kind of culture. And so what you have is you have a, a form of 
uh, kind of like elites, you know, at the top who look like they are uh, holier than Jesus himself. And, um, and, and, and so they can kind of look down their noses at those lesser likes who are not holy, you know, because of, uh, I don't know, somebody, somebody has some kind of addiction that they haven't been able to quite lick, or somebody is, has this ongoing problem of, um, uh, a relationship, you know, where, um, where it's clearly not honoring God, uh, in that relationship. And so, uh, the, the, in a, they'd say, well, you know, we're not going to condone such behavior, but that always comes with a pretense that they themselves don't also have their own junk and their own sin, uh, that they're also guilty of, right? There's a lack of actual human solidarity, uh, at the cross with that kind of treatment. So that's one of the mistakes that church can make. The other one is to just, again, pretend like, well, none of it matters. And so, what we try to do as a church community is to deal with those things in a, in a, as a pastoral way as we possibly can. Um, you know, so for instance, uh, if, if a person, uh, if there's a person that comes into our church community and they, you know, they're the sinner of all sinners, uh, and they're unashamed and unabashed in their, uh, rebellion against, you know, everything that is godly, uh, and they come into our church community and I don't have, you know, any real relationship with that person. Um, I'm, I'm going to be glad that that person is here in the presence of God, experiencing the people of God all around him or her. And I'm not going to get too hyped up or concerned about like, you know, what that person is doing or is going to do when they leave that place, uh, leave, you know, this place. Because again, it's not my job to change them. It, you know, it's my God to it's my job to to lead them to Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, and and pray and hope and like play what little part I might in um, in in helping them to discover salvation in Jesus themselves. So you know, yeah, the the way I think about or treat that person is uh, hopefully just warmly, graciously. <laughs> You know, understanding there's a pretty big difference between the way that person wants to live their lives and the way I happen to live my life, but that, you know, hey, that's that it is what it is. Now, uh, let's say I have another person who's been a part of our church family for uh, a considerable amount of time, and I have a real uh, like, uh, like a real relationship with that person, and and for whatever reason, there has been, um, there have been, that, that person has begun making some concessions in their lives, you know, maybe even uh, making some like moral decisions that have kind of departed away from what we have, what we used to always agree were um, concessions that we ought not to make morally. Like, how am I going to deal with that? Am I going to just pretend that it's not there or excuse the behavior? No, I, you know, what I, what I, what I probably ought to do is as a responsible brother in the Lord is come and, and check in on that person. Hey, like what, what's going on here? Like I'm, I'm really, really concerned about, and so not, not having the attitude of, Hey, you know, I'm superior to you. Like, look how good I'm living my life and how poorly you're starting to live your life. Right. If I come off as that, then I'm never, I'm just going to lose that person. Um, and, and so, yeah, we have to, we have to act in a way that is gracious and kind, but that is also 
willing to do the hard thing or have the hard conversation uh, when that's necessary. So long story short, um, yeah, it, we we treat people like look for like what does it mean to treat a person um, the way that Jesus would treat that person? I, I know that probably sounds pretty simplistic, but I, uh, also not a bad uh, not a bad goal. All right. Uh, what would you say are some of the most popular falsehoods being taught in order to receive applause? So I'd mentioned that, uh, you know, some have gravitated toward a, a kind of a form of the gospel or what they would call the gospel that is more, it's just more palatable for an increasingly secular society like the one in which we live. Um, and so, again, just thinking about like, how we need to recognize our vulnerability to um, to believing a lie, to listening to and assimilating, you know, some particular falsehood. I think this person's asking, what are some of those popular falsehoods? Um, you know, one I would say, uh, if I could just speak to like American Christians who live with a pretty high degree of affluence, um, like we have, many of us have embraced the falsehood of uh, something like the prosperity gospel, right? Which is a, it's a kind of telling of the gospel that says that if you're a person uh, who has the right kind of faith, then God wants to bless you, right? If you're sick, then God wants to heal you. If you're poor, then God wants to fill your bank account, right? And all you have to do is, you know, have the right kind of faith or do the right kind of thing, and then God will, he'll be, he'll be obliged um, to bless you, right? Because he has made certain promises in scripture. And so if you claim those promises, then they will be yours because God never goes back on his word. I mean, that's just, it's such a, a poor form of the gospel. I think that the uh, a more pure form of the gospel uh, helps us to understand that to follow in the footsteps of Jesus is going to require oftentimes a life of suffering. It's going to require a life of being on the 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 bad end of um, uh, another person's anger or hatred or malice. Uh, we are going to find ourselves, you know, in a position where we're going to have to forgive people who haven't even asked for our forgiveness, uh, of being willing to suffer, um, you know, some abuse from the outside world that we don't actually deserve, right? Like suffering seems to be a bigger theme in following Jesus than wealth and prosperity seems to be. But what, you know, what's more attractive to me as an American Christian who has a good job, you know, um, a, a house and a car or cars and like, you know, um, uh, a retirement account, like all these things, like what I want, the, the kind of gospel I want to believe is the one that says that, you know, as long as I, um, as long as I don't keep it all, as long as I, you know, I, I got to give away some, as long as I got to, show a little or demonstrate a little bit of care for other people, then I'm okay with being as selfish and greedy otherwise with all that I, um, that I have after that. And again, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a falsehood. <laughs> um, as Christians, we're called to surrender our whole entire lives to Jesus, that everything we are, everything we have is his. And that is, that is a that is a pretty high and lofty calling, one that I fall woefully short of. Um, 
and that like I need to do a better job of that. So that would be one. Uh, another falsehood would, uh, I think, probably be uh, one that that um, that becomes more uh, permissive with the you know like what we do with our what we do with our lives. Um, one that would just like, it's, it's kind of more happy to have warm bodies in seats and preaching a kind of message, uh, kind of gospel that is, it's like, it's easy on our ears. It's easy on our lives. It doesn't necessarily require a whole lot of change as opposed to the kind of gospel that like brings us, uh, to a critical point in our faith where we have to decide, all right, am I going to continue to do this or am I going to continue to go there or am I going to surrender my life to Jesus? Right. Because it's like, I, you know, being a part of Jesus's kingdom is, it means abandoning and throwing away, you know, this other stuff that doesn't belong in Jesus's kingdom. Uh, it's not, there's, there's a kind of telling of the gospel that may not be all that popular. And so, you know, like, do we do we domesticate it a little bit? Do we make it a little more palatable for people? Do we make it a little more accessible uh, for people so that there's not so much change uh, required in their lives? Like that, that could be a kind of falsehood. Um, the, you know, in our church, not, not Curtis Lake Church, I mean, maybe, but like in the church uh, at large, there, there have been those who have, um, have elevated um, the the role that uh, we as human beings play in redeeming the world. Um, and so uh, while the church, sometimes the church has been really guilty of not of not being very concerned with things like, um, you know, matters of justice and righteousness in the world, like they haven't, they have been, Sometimes the church has failed to be concerned about the plight of the poor, um, has been unconcerned with, with particular members of, of a marginalized society. Um, it's been unconcerned with those who are disenfranchised. And so that's a major problem. Um, then, you know, maybe on the other extreme, there are movement layer like movements that would position themselves as, you know, as still religious, as still spiritual, but that are, that are, are really only almost primarily and almost exclusively concerned with, uh, human, uh, just, yeah, hum humanitarian kinds of issues, you know? So for instance, like, let's say a church is wholly established on, um, on, you know, some particular, uh, um, stem of, uh, uh, you know, the justice movement. Right. And, and it's like, that's, that's, that's all that they're about. And that that's all they really care about are, you know, relief and humanitarian kinds of efforts. I mean, like the, all those things are really good, but if there's no concern for the whole being that a person is, um, that is, we are, we are body, soul, and spirit. Um, then that that's a major problem. Like if all I care about is feeding the hungry or providing clean water to those who don't currently have it and, and otherwise unconcerned with the, the, the well-being of their soul, that's a problem. Um, it, it, now, it's also a problem if all I care about is their soul and I don't do anything to remedy the problem of their hunger uh, or their thirst, right? So it's like um, both forms of 
both of those forms of the gospel, I think, are, are incomplete or, or false. So those are a few. I'm, I'm sure there's probably more. Uh, next question, how does the church balance the outward experience, music, people, preacher, with the inward experience that the person attending needs and is looking for? So, yeah, we're obviously very interested in what we um, of what we can do to help enhance the outward experience that a person has. Again, like we don't want to, we don't want to sing bad music. Um, we don't want to preach bad sermons. We don't want, uh, for everybody to have a sourpuss look on their face, uh, that, that, that just creates an environment of unfriendliness, right? we're, We're concerned about the outward experience. Um, you know, we want people to walk into a space and feel like there's light here. Um, uh, that people, first of all, people are glad to be here. Uh, they're glad to be in the company of one another. Um, that there's some hospitality that's being offered. You know, maybe there's um, coffee being served or um, some other kind of uh, snack, right? Like that that we're we're sharing in that. There are smiling, happy faces. There is a positive kind of uh, vibe that's coming. You know, maybe from the platform out into the congregation. Uh, that we're, you know, we're trying to curate um, to some degree, right? Um, but, but not to have any of those external features working to the exclusion of or even uh, to uh, overshadow the need for the inward experience that we need to have, right? Like, what good is it to be in an environment where you hear, you know, some some really great music being played and sung, um, and a, a just as beautiful and eloquent sermon being delivered? If nothing happens inside of us, if if we walk out of that experience in exactly the same form that we came in, then what is the point of us having done it at all, right? And so, yeah, we do we do want to balance that. We want to. Um, we're, we're called to cooperate with God, to create an experience, a gathering. And so a lot of time is spent organizing what we do on a Sunday morning. But we want to do that in cooperation with what God wants to do in our hearts and lives, not to the exclusion of. Next question is, what does a people of prayer look like? What is the difference between praying for certain things and actually uh, loving in prayer? Uh, so I had mentioned that one of the things that we have to do is we have to become a people of prayer. Uh, we have to be committing ourselves to being prayerful people. That is that as I'm growing as a Christian, um, God is more and more and more on my mind, like more than he ever has before, that I have thoughts of him and what he is doing um, and what is happening in the realm of the unseen more so than I used to. Um, you know, prior to becoming a Christian, a person may, you know, simply follow their more, uh, their more animalistic kinds of, um, uh, uh, urges, you know, um, their habits, you know, it's like, you know, you know, you get up and you eat because you're hungry and you sleep because you're tired and you go to work because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. And so you just, you go about your life, um, you know, living it like largely in the physical realm without any, without much concern for, um, for that realm that is unseen to be a person of prayer is to understand that like God is working 
behind the scenes. God is working in invisible ways, not only in my life, but also in other people's lives. And I need to become more attuned to that, right? I have to, I have to get out of just this purely materialistic way of seeing the world and seeing other people and understand that there's a spiritual dimension to not only the environment that I'm in, but also there's a spiritual dimension to the person that I'm sitting across the table from, right? They're not just a physical body. They're not just a collection uh, of atoms and molecules that happen to be, you know, um, you know, organized together in this particular, you know, filling this particular space in time. No, they're, they're a spiritual entity. Uh, and so I, the way I actually have communion with God is through the vehicle of prayer. Um, I, I don't, I don't get to make an appointment to go and sit in God's office and sit across, you know, uh, you know, God's desk and have a, uh, an out loud conversation with him like I would another person, right? God is a spirit being, and I commune with him through that immaterial part of me, which is spirit. And so um, if I give no attention to that dimension of my existence, then all I'm going to do is what I know to do or what I can do in my own human strength and effort, which this may surprise you, but that is very, very limited. <laughs> um, I'm a very finite being. But when I open myself up to the dimension in which God is working and operating, then I I make myself available. Um, and I think I make available to me uh, a higher degree of more infinite resources, right? Like when I I can pray about something that I have no control over and find help and intervention coming from the power of God. And so, yeah, we as a church, we like, we need to, we need to invite God in so that we aren't just a place that preaches a good sermon or sings some great music or does some good programming, but we truly are a place where God's presence is invited to come and dwell among us and change us from the inside out. Is there something wrong with having excellence in areas like preaching, music, or programming? Why does it seem like Paul is so against it? So, yeah, I'd say, no, there's not only is there not anything wrong with striving for excellence in these areas, I think we are compelled to strive for excellence in any of these areas. I mean, like, would it make sense that, that, that I, uh, that I, that, that you and I should be okay with me getting up and, and preaching a half-baked message, right? That, you know, like I, I, um, yeah, I spent a little time on it, but largely just kind of mailed it in. Cause like who really cares anyway? Like, no, is it okay if, if, uh, if, if we just got up and, you know, none of the musicians knew what was going on. It was just kind of like this disorganized chaos. And, uh, you know, instead of, instead of helping to conduct a worship service where, um, you know, the melodies and the harmonies, sound beautiful. No, like, so God created this thing called beauty. He has given us the capacity to appreciate the aesthetic of beauty. Uh, and so we should be seeking beauty in everything that we do because it, it's a way in which we, um, that we glorify God, that we honor God. Uh, so, uh, the question here is why does Paul seem so against it? Uh, and so let me just clarify, Paul is not, he's not against any of these things. What he's against is he's against a kind, um, a kind of faith or religion that is founded on human wisdom or human devices. That is, 
you know, we do not, we do not find God um, through our own intuition. We do not become Christians, you know, because we figured it out. Rather, like God intersected our world in the person of Jesus and through the cross. And now our faith is founded upon like what it means to live in allegiance to Jesus as our, as our King. Um, in that kingdom, like strive for all the excellence you possibly can. Right. I mean, I personally believe that uh, for those that, that work a, a, a job, you know, what you bring to that job as a Christian should be far superior to what you brought that job as a non-Christian, right? If you were pretty excellent before you were a follower of Jesus in the work that you did, you should be even more excellent uh, because now you see your work not just simply as a way that you earn a paycheck or make a living, but now you see your work as a way in which you glorify and honor God. Um, so Paul's not against, he's not against excellence. He just doesn't want a striving for human excellence to become a replacement for the power of God. Uh, next person says, I hope we do more events and home groups out in the community and not always staying within our walls. Party in the park touched so many we would never see here. Uh, so for those of us, those of you that may be listening who aren't part of our church community, um, we just did this major community event uh, out in one of our local parks. And I agree uh, 100% with what this person says. Uh, and, and I think this is kind of the church that we tend to be. Uh, yeah, we do, we do do a lot of stuff here uh, as well. And I think there's good reasons to, to, you know, hold certain events uh, here on our church property because it, you know, maybe in, it gets a person onto the property to see that, oh, this isn't such a scary place like I thought it might be. Or maybe it gives them an opportunity to reimagine what church might be or might look like and um, becomes a way that they're attracted to actually, you know, go beyond whatever that. Uh, whatever that outreach or experience was to attending a church service. But yeah, um, we want to be out in our community. What we can't do is we can't wait for the church. You know, like when I say the church, now I'm talking about like me and the few people that work here. We can't wait for like the leadership of the church to invent a bunch of different ways that we can be out in our community. No, you have to be out in your community. You have to be out in your neighborhood. You have to be out in your workplace uh, and in the marketplace uh, embodying uh, a life that is devoted to Jesus and using the relationships that you have with others to uh, point people to Jesus and to the cross as well. Like that's how we're going to touch people. That's how we're going to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, how to respond when engaged with someone who says they know and follow Jesus, but live in a way that the Bible clearly says is sinful, but they don't see a sin. Yeah. I, um, I think we kind of touched on this already. Um, yeah, again, I think it's largely going to depend on the relationship that you have with that person. Um, we have to be careful to understand that, uh, we have very, very little control over what other people are going to do, uh, with their lives. And so I would just say to the degree that you're able, like demonstrate love and care and concern and compassion for a person, uh, always be more concerned with the, um, the things that God wants to deal with you in your own life than you are what God wants to deal with in the lives of other people. And I think you'll probably be on the right track for treating people um, the way that Jesus would want us to treat them. 
How do we balance programming and time constraints with staying focused on Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit lead, even change things mid-service? Um, yeah, uh, so like when it comes to our gatherings, I mean, we obviously have a kind of time constraint. Uh, you know, <laughs> the joke around here is that like we expect our services to be an hour and five minutes, but, you know, Josh always preaches 15, 20 minutes longer than he's supposed to. And so our church services are now an hour and 20, hour and 25 minutes. And there's a part of me that's that like, yeah, I, I'll confess. I mean, I, I, I go into every week trying to be more responsible with the time, but hey, what can I say? I just, I, you know, I, I love it. Um, <laughs> I love whatever it is that we're talking about. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes me a long time, believe it or not, to get to my point. Sorry. I mean, that's just the way I am, but no, no, I, yeah. So that, yeah, that's on me to try to be more um, responsible with the time. Uh, but boy, I, 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 you know, there's the other part of me just wishes that we could somehow break the rhythm of our rushed and hurried lives, that, that we would largely be more okay with if a church service lasted, oh, heaven forbid, an hour and 30 minutes, you know, that like all hell's not going to just, you know, break loose uh, because, uh, because we were in church a few minutes longer with one another. Um, you know, we want, we want to focus on Jesus and we want to let the Holy Spirit lead. I, 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 if I could guess that this person might be asking, you know, like, is there room for like in the, over the course of a service, is there room for things to, for things to change, you know, because of the way the spirit may be leading? Uh, and I'd like to say, yeah, I hope so. Uh, you know, this, this past Sunday, um, you know, as we were singing, I, um, when I stepped in, uh, and onto the platform, I just like, I felt very, very impressed to, um, to have, to pray together with everybody, um, you know, very specifically pray regarding, you know, certain things, you know, and I feel like that's like, that's just God leading us in the moment. Like I didn't do that again, the second service. I mean, I probably, I probably prayed, but it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't reading a prayer that I had prepared. It's just, it's just, I think, understanding um, that we are cooperating with God's Spirit uh, whenever we're gathered together. Uh, and so when I think about the Holy Spirit leading, I, I, I'm trying to be led by the Holy Spirit before I get into the sanctuary on Sunday morning, right? Like, I, I want to be led by the Spirit as I'm preparing the message, listening to God's voice uh, pour into me uh, what will hopefully later come out on Sunday morning. And then also understand that, you know, that, that, um, you know, we are human beings and we are in a dynamic environment. And sometimes, you know, God might lead us to do, you know, some particular thing. I think, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I just felt really impressed. It's not nothing I had planned, but I just felt really impressed to ask people to come to the altar at the end of the service. And we don't ever do that or hardly ever do that. It's not part of our culture. And so it's kind of weird, but I just, I, you know, I felt like it was important for us to do that. And so, um, I, I'm not saying that there isn't a room for a lot of improvement when it comes to things like that, but yeah, like let's, let's all be, let's all try to be growing more sensitive to God's spirit. Uh, is a study on prayer, a useful tool for learning about the various types of prayer and how to pray? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, there's a famous story in the gospels where, uh, you know, Jesus, 
he set a tremendous example of what it meant to be in close communion with God through prayer, right? Through his father, to his father. I mean, he would, he, he would, he would sometimes pray in front of people. He would sometimes steal away to a private place to pray. And like one thing his disciples knew was that, wow, Jesus spends a lot of time praying. And so they asked him one day, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, and then from that, you know, we have just the few verses that we call the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we need to learn to pray, yeah. Um, and sometimes we overcomplicated the idea of what prayer is, but there's tons and tons and tons of resources out there if you really are interested in learning uh, about what prayer is. There are. There are different kinds of disciplines in the act of praying. Uh, some people come from religious traditions where they were given like prayers to sort of memorize and recite uh, from memory. Uh, and, and so that becomes a part of their, uh, part of their discipline. And I don't do that, but I, I'm, I'm not against the idea of somebody doing that. Uh, certainly I do think that whether you recite, you know, certain prayers, we all should be learning uh, what it means to have a more dynamic kind of prayer life, one that is just very real and raw in the presence of God. Um, the first thing we have to do is we have to slow ourselves down and, again, get out of the hurried cycle of our lives and just quiet ourselves before the Lord. Uh, we have to understand that sometimes prayer is more about listening to what God wants to speak to us than it is necessarily just blabbing to him all the things that we think that we ought to blab to him, right? Prayer is a two-way uh, kind of communication. And so, um, yeah, hopefully more and more people will be uh, uncovering the power that prayer will have as a feature in our lives. Uh, are today's modern and Western megachurches a poor representation of what the church should actually look like, or is it just a shallow spectacle? Uh, when it comes to things like megachurches, uh, I mean, I have kind of mixed opinions about them. I think there are probably churches that are really, really large that are conducting, quote unquote, church um, well, and then there are others that simply are not. Um, how would I evaluate that? Uh, I mean, I think I would evaluate it based on not the apparent success that that church happens to be having because it's, you know, just as soon as they finish building an auditorium big enough to suit sit, to sit all of their people, they, they have to build another and bigger auditorium to sit the more people that are, um, that are coming. Like I wouldn't just base it on the numbers of people that are part of that church community. I think I would evaluate based on are, are people actually experiencing spiritual community with other people? Like are people having more and more intense conversations regarding spiritual matters with other people that are also journeying uh, with them? Are people's lives being transformed? Like are people's lives changing? Are they um, you know, are they are they moving from a, a place where their lives were being lived largely in disobedience to God's commands to a place where they're um, they're more obedient to God's commands? Like, is there real is is the uh, is the demonstration of God's unconditional love becoming a, a greater manifestation? Like, those are the ways that I would evaluate um, you know whether a church of any size is doing it well. Uh, now, you know, I, I would love for, you know, I'd love to see our church just continue to grow. Uh, and it has, it has been, you know, has been growing, uh, and I'd love to see it 
grow and grow and grow, right? The, the, the human, like, sinful part of me, like, wants to be the pastor of the, the biggest church in the area because then everybody will look at me and say, oh, look how awesome he is, right? Um, but, yeah, what I need to be more concerned about is, like, are we growing well? Are we not necessarily growing bigger, but are we growing deeper? Um, are we fulfilling what God is calling us to be as a spiritual community? Um, or are we just like a bunch of really, really shallow people that have a um, kind of a religious facade? Uh, I want central allegiance to be only to Christ, his death and resurrection. But what about when confronted with ideas that seem clearly condemned in the Bible? Uh, if I could rephrase this question, I think what is being asked here is, yeah, yeah, I'm on board with, uh, I'm on board with really focusing in on and honing in on uh, the reality of the person of Jesus, who he is, his death and his resurrection. You know, but what are we going to do when it comes to you know certain things that are clearly condemned in the Bible? Uh, well, like first of all, we're not going to we're not going to shy away from those things. I think we want to. Uh, I think we want to be the kind of place that can that can have a conversation about things that are even really, really difficult for us to hear. Um, we want to invite those kinds of conversations. We want to experience conviction, um, you know, for what sin it might be present in our lives uh, so that we can repent of that sin and just come more into alignment with what Jesus has for us. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, like, I don't think, I don't think we want to adopt the way of just being a, a church that seems, um, like it doesn't care, uh, about the, the, um, the ways in which we as human beings rebel against God or how we, uh, behave in ways that are an affront to God's holiness. Um, but you know, at the same time, I, I, I think we just, we want, we want to act in a manner that seems like it's in accordance with how Jesus would act toward people. I mean, Jesus had a way of being where he, he never, he never condoned anything that, um, you know, would clearly have been condemned, uh, as, uh, as an offense against God or an offense against another person. I, like, yeah, he was never, he was never going to condone that, but, but he also had a way of, uh, of treating another person, even a person that might be guilty of such things in ways that were very, very humanizing. Um, so much so that, you know, many turned from those things, uh, not, not because they were bullied into, uh, turning from those things, but because of the, the love that they experienced uh, from Jesus that caused them to want to turn their lives around, right? And so that's that's the approach I think that we want to take as a church. That like let's point people to Jesus. Let's demonstrate the attractiveness of His unconditional love for us. And um, you know, some people will accept and embrace that and will be transformed by the power of God into a whole new creature. Uh, some people will reject and walk away from that. And, um, yeah, I mean, we can only be responsible for, for doing what Jesus has called us to do. All right. If our faith is based on the crucifixion, where does that leave the resurrection? Is that, 
is that a necessary belief in Christianity? Yes, I would place that also right up there with essential beliefs. Uh, we're, you know, we're talking about the crucifixion because that's specifically what Paul's talking about here in First Corinthians one and two. But of course, Paul also said in another place that uh, that the re- resurrection is essentially important. In fact, he says that without the resurrection, our faith is useless and in vain. Right. So, if Jesus is not raised, then your faith is for nothing. So the resurrection um, definitely sort of lives in tandem with the crucifixion as a necessary belief in Christianity. Why does approaching someone in love have to be directly connected to what we perceive as sin in their lives? Why does it have to be directly connected? Uh, I'm not sure I understand exactly what the question is asking. Um, Shana, can you translate that for me? Okay. Uh, if Shana can't translate that, then I don't know. Uh, I would say approaching someone in love doesn't have to be directly connected to what we perceive as sin in their lives. In fact, like let's be less concerned about what sin we see in other people's lives, and let's just simply approach people and live with people in love. And uh, yeah, I think we've said it a thousand times now. Um, like let's let's let God be the change agent in the lives of other people. Not sure if this is happening in our church, but I'd like to see an outreach team that would reach out to people who may not be attending that once were. Amen to that. That's wonderful. Um, uh, Lori, I invite you to jump right onto that team and help us form it. Uh, no, I, I'm, uh, I'm being half facetious. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Like, let's, let's do it. Um, uh, and you're going to find me, you know, when something like this is brought up, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be the first to invite a person to be a part of that. Um, when somebody said, when if somebody wants to be critical of something that our church, you know, isn't doing or isn't doing well, or wishes that our church was a certain way, I'd like you know, first thing I'm going to say, I think, is, well, you know, why don't why don't you help us? I mean, like 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 we are a church community. We are not a purely a top down kind of thing where everything is about you know some idea that pops into my head. In fact, if that's what we're going to be, we're in big trouble. So um, let's work from the ground up. Let's. Let's 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 see things happening, at, you know, on a grassroots level. Um, if this is a burden that uh, you know Lori or somebody else might be listening is feeling, then let's figure out how we can make that happen. Uh, I was baptized as a baby in a Catholic church, and have been have had being ba- rebaptized on my mind for the past year. But I've done some research that suggests I shouldn't. Um. I don't know. I don't know what research would suggest that, other than you know, you know, is it is it coming from the Catholic Church that's saying, hey, don't get rebaptized? Um, you know, we've had a lot. We've had a lot of people over the years who were baptized as babies uh, in the church, in the Catholic Church, and that want to get rebaptized as teenagers or as adults. I I think that's great. I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, it, it, let me explain why that may be the case. Um, you know, so the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has a different view of baptism than we do in the Evangelical Church. Um, they hold baptism as a um, as a sacrament. That is, that it is a necessary act that must be accomplished in order for a person to go to heaven, uh, for instance. And we see baptism not as a necessary act, but something that we are called to do in obedience to Jesus. And so the examples that we have in scriptures of people being baptized are 
um, their people are getting baptized because they want to be baptized, right? They're not infants that are just days old that have no say in whether they're going to be baptized. They're, they're, um, they're people that understand what baptism is, what it's about, what it means, um, and that through baptism are publicly professing their faith in Jesus. Um, baptism was for the early church, as it is for us today, a, it's a kind of like induction into the church. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a public demonstration that I am, I am part of this body of Christ. And so, yeah, if you're feeling the itch to get baptized, we would love for nothing more uh, than for you to be baptized. All right. Last question. Ooh, two part. Uh, I always thought the purpose of having an excellent music, great programming, friendly environment, et cetera, was to draw people in to be curious. Then once in, they were, they hear God's word. And by being with other Christians, they start to have that desire to build that relationship with our amazing God. Um, so yeah, let's close out our time with saying, well said. Uh, yes, I, I think that uh, part of why we want for the music to be excellent, why we want the programming to be excellent, why we want the environment to be friendly is we want people uh, who have never heard of Curtis Lake, uh, have a friend say to them, hey, you you got to check this place out. Uh, I mean, like they got a live band. Uh, the music is is wonderful. The uh, they got stuff for the kids. The kids love going there. Like, listen, if that if that attracts a person to our church, I am all for it. Um, and then, yes, hopefully when they're here and they're put in a space where they experience the love of God's people, the love that God's people have for one another and the love that God's people have for God, that their lives will be eternally uh, affected for that. So amen to that. That's great. Thank you so much for all the questions. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for making it through one and one half hours of this week's podcast. Uh, Shane, I'll bet there's not 22 questions next week, but we'll see. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the My Messy Church podcast. If you're local to the area, we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at either 845 or 1030 a.m. If you're not local, feel free to stream online at curtislake.online.church. Thanks again for joining us, and we can't wait to see you next week.